What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio with Dan and Nath. Hi, Dan. You alright? You alright, player? Player, yeah, that's the second time I've missed you. I thought you just called me Pleb. Yeah, what up, Pleb? Pleb, boy. Um, what up, Loke? <laughs> uh, good week, Sam? Yeah, pretty good. How about you? Good. I went to watch the Menzingers in Bristol on uh, Wednesday, which was pretty awesome. Did they wave to you? No, I got... no they didn't. Oh. But it was good. They were class. They're always good. What else has happened? Should we just go straight into Wales this week? Because a lot of things have been happening uh, in the month, almost, since we've done the last podcast. Or is it three weeks? Two weeks. Are you sure? I think it's two weeks. Um, okay. Oh, I can't stop sniffing. I'm really sorry. Um, kind of both ill as well. So just to, to preface this intro. So The news that's happened is, first one, I guess, is that Neil McAvoy has been suspended from the Plaid Group in the Assembly. There was a petition against him claiming he was a bully. Um, the, I think he got 20,000 signatures and Plaid sort of went with popular opinion and, and ditched him. And now I guess he's just sort of in the Assembly on his own as an independent, which is what happened to... One of the UKIP people, wasn't it? They got sort of kicked out. Was it out. Neil Ham- Hamilton? Or maybe it was Nathan Gill, I think, just, oh. or someone was basically standing in. So they're in the assembly, not representing the party that they were. Well, I don't know, you know. And it also happened to, well, David Ellis Thomas is now no longer implied, as far as I'm aware, or he's not in the assembly as a applied member. He's, he's in the government as a the tourist minister. But it's a bit weird, isn't it? All this happening. Like, so, I mean, that's three. There's UK, UKIP have been sort of famous for having. Um, poor discipline in the assembly and now apparently according to simon thomas plaid have got a terrible record of dealing with internal disciplinary problems so we've got a number of members in the assembly who aren't there and the, the ticket that they were elected on or they're just there and they've been ostracized from their party so it's like in some ways it's good because you think people should be in there it would be great to have someone in there without a party political agenda that's just going to be banging the drum for their um, yeah, constituents. Rights, so. uh, <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the weird thing about the, the Neil McAvoy thing and the problem I've got with the whole thing, and, and it's one of those issues now you don't even want to, because he's such a divisive guy, and because, let's face it, he the stuff he talks about, a lot of it is about men's rights, which is <laughs> political kryptonite. Like, you know, it's just not something you want to bang on about, no. uh, especially in this day and age. But um, the problem I've got with it is that, okay, Neil, I've never met Neil McAvoy. And he may well actually be a bully. The problem with the whole thing is that the original bullying charge against him brought when he was in the Cardiff Council was a clearly politi- pol- clearly politically driven smear campaign in which he was attending an anti-eviction hearing and all he said was, I can't wait till we change the council. And then months went by and then a Labour member of the council dragged that up and said, actually, that's bullying behaviour against the woman in charge of the eviction, which, I mean, it's not bullying. I mean, sorry, I mean, it's not. It makes a mockery of the concept of bullying to say that a throwaway statement like that is bullying against someone. That, against someone. Years. I mean, bullying is a victim. Bullying, 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 bullying is evicting someone. You know, that's structural bullying. Saying, you know, getting angry and saying, well, I can't wait till we change the council. Mm. That's not bullying. But so it... How it, sinister was it when you said it? I can't wait till we <laughs> change the council. And then he did the neck... Yeah. Slitting gesture. Um, I like the council, but it'd be a shame if something And then he happened. left like a, a pumpkin on the doorstep of the council with a knife in it. Mm. It was but, spring as well, so, you know. But no, I'm done with that. That's like, I do that all the time, so. Um, yeah. But I, so that's Deconstructed the thing. I mean, but, uh, but, but apparently they you know, the, apparently a lot of the claims against him are, you know, are legitimate. But the fact that that, I mean, the fact that there has been a clear element of 
let's get this guy out of the picture, obviously just calls into question the whole process because he's now claiming that um, Darren Consultancy, a lobbying firm that he's been, you know, quite rightly in my firm, in my mind rather, railing against, you know, he's, you know, lobbyists are bad. You know, mm. They're getting privileged, you know, they're, they're using their political connections to get people privilege access to ministers and get them to change policy. That's what lobbying is. And the, the worst thing about the lobbying thing is that you've got these sensible, you know, centrist people saying, uh, actually, polit- uh, lobbying is a sign of, like, a mature democracy yeah. rather than a sign of, like, horrible elitist cronyism that the assembly was meant to move past. It's, it's, it's healthy that um, our political... Leaders. It's good we've got our own corruption now. Yeah, yeah that's a sign of a healthy. Maturity. Yeah, but um, but I mean that I've actually heard that as an argument. So, so he was like you know rightly railing against Darren and the uh, you know the prevalence of lobbying in the Welsh Assembly, and like all conspiracy theories, you know he's been labelled a conspiracy theorist now because he said our oh, Darren, cons- Darren consultants consultancy is behind this sort of you know these sig- the sig- signatures to get rid of me and um, behind Darren is the Illuminati yeah and behind them is the New World Order yeah and behind them is us <laughs> <laughs> what else has been happening Dan uh, alright so the other thing that's happened is so Jack Sargent Carl Sargent's son who's now standing in his place in Connors Key in the sort of by-election there is he pulled out of the hustings that they were having the live televised hustings and Evan was moaning. Well, it wasn't his excuse. He said, I'd rather speak uh, directly to the people of Alvin and D's side. The thing is, he has got a point in that these things are like carefully stage-managed, rubbish events, sound bites that help absolutely no one. Um, but, I mean, if you wanted a platform to speak to a lot of people of, but it, of but it uh, did, you know, I mean, Alan and D's side. The more I think about, so the, the more I think about this whole episode, I kind of think that it's something that could only happen in Wales. I mean, firstly, we should say that, you know, Jack Sargent seems like a really good lad, um, a tough guy. He's been through. He's obviously been through a, a, a lot, clearly. But now that the dust has settled, and only in Wales could they say, oh, we'll just give the seat to Carl's boy. Mm. When my dad killed himself, I didn't get uh, his job Did at, you the, get it, at didn't the paper you? mills. I didn't, know. Oh. I didn't. Despite having little like, little experience. But I don't know. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's no nice, no way to sugarcoat this. Having your dad kill yourself doesn't qualify you to be an AM. No, I um, put it on my CV all the time. It's just... <laughs> But on the other, on the other hand, I'm not saying it disqual. I'm not saying it, him being young disqualifies him because he may well be a very competent guy, and there's absolutely no way he could be any worse no. than, frankly, most of the people in government. But, but being particularly cynical, I mean, it's something you would get quite a lot of political capital out of, wouldn't you? And not so much you as the individual, but you as the party or you as a faction within a party. But it's just what I what I think the issue is is that Welsh Labour is so utterly dominant in Wales that they're at the stage now where they can literally stand anyone. I think, I mean, I honestly think at this stage they could stand like an inanimate object, you know, like the inanimate carbon rod on The Mm. Simpsons. They could stand anything and it would win because people wouldn't even vote for it because the other parties are that bad and people are so entrenched in their views. And so I just think that the whole, the the reason it's not even seen as problematic is symptomatic of the culture of one party and that we've got that it's not even, well, obviously he's going to win and he is going to win. But the other worrying thing about it is this lad is, he's just been through a traumatic event. Um, Carwin Jones didn't get invited to Carl Sargent's funeral because Mm. he wasn't welcome because he was alleged to have, you know, he seemed to have contributed to Carl Sargent killing himself. Jack Sargent is going to get elected, is going to be down in the assembly in the Labour group so he's clearly not got a relationship with Carwin Jones. Is he basically going to be used as a pawn by people that want to like dethrone Carwin Jones? I mean, that's not 
a great thing to happen when you've just entered politics. You're going to go in the assembly and they're like, all right, well. It's, it's a tough lesson to learn, a quick lesson to learn, I suppose. You're getting a crash course on, like, basically real, real politics. Like. But, I mean, what I'm saying is, are people just going, yeah, we'll get Jack Sargent in, and then we can use him to basically oust Carwin Jones when he's down there. Well, I, I don't know if it's, like, you know, a, a darkened room filled with smoke and they're, like, trying to move pieces around like a board. But I think it's just a case they're not, of, like... Then they're not, it's whales. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not intelligent enough for that. No. It's, or glamorous. It's too many, too many uh, things you have to do for that. But I mean, in terms of it's just like, oh, uh, Jack, do you want to run? But I just don't think yeah. political dynasties are a good thing. You know I mean? You shouldn't have, I mean, it's all, it's also, I mean, it could just be a short-termist thing where they're like, you know, people are genuinely saying, well, who better than to carry on, you know, his dad's legacy than Carl, you know, than his son who campaigned for him and has his values. I mean, was he his apprentice or anything? No, I mean, he did go door knocking. Obviously, he's like schooled in the, like the, that sort of labor tradition of, but, of wrapping your fist against the door and getting an but, answer but on the other hand it's like well i don't know i think a lot of people probably wanted him to stand as like a to stick the middle finger up at carwin jones mm. but that's just not really a healthy mature thing to do it's like i don't know i think they probably should have they should have cancelled the by-election should have waited but if they did postpone the by-election they'd lose the political you know capital political political trajectory from his death and then it would go down to more of like an even fight i mean it's i don't know i think I, I find the whole thing a bit troubling to be honest and again no disrespect to jack Sargent at all i don't want to it's just that what's happened doesn't seem to be indicative of a healthy democracy at all no not at all but you know wales isn't a healthy democracy so it's yeah that's, it's kind that's of awesome. descending more and more into like the day-to-day black mirror territory and um by the week yeah. uh, is there anything but not as not as shit as black mirror what else has happened? Oh, yeah. Um, well, Chris Graylin, a uh, little segment, said uh, that the rail electrification to Swansea was a good thing because that means there won't be any disruptive works. Okay, good. Thank yeah. you, Chris Graylin. Yeah, cheers. Thank you to the... Also, he, thank you to uh, our the, Prime Minister, Theresa May, for looking after the best interests of Wales. Yeah, he also made God the same the argument Queen. of like uh, not replacing the mud roads uh, <laughs> because it just disrupt all the horse and carriages. Oh, speaking of mud, um, Cardiff Council voted unanimously to reject uh i think applied proposals to further sort of sample the alleged nuclear mud that's being dumped outside um, cardiff is, um, what's, what's the, the neil mcavoy was the one no who, who's who's the one we beef with oh the councillor yeah. um hugh thomas. hugh thomas hugh thomas yeah he's he's personally um tasted a sample of the mud <laughs> <laughs> And, and let me tell you, everyone, it's fine. It is. this mud just tastes like regular mud. Yeah, it, it is. tastes like the mud I eat back home in Caradigan. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the weird thing is about it, I mean, they were like, oh, you, you're an idiot. Like, you know, science has said this mud's not radioactive. And and then everyone's like, how do you know? No, because we test it. I've but, eaten it. Because I've eaten it. Um, and it didn't taste radioactive. It, it tastes the people's mud. But the weirdest thing is, and, and this is the sort of it's basic... It's not the point anyway, But, but the basic because... thing is... Why would you dump it there anyway? That's the issue. Yeah, it? it's not a well, case of it's radioactive or not. It's just like using Wales as a massive dumping ground. Well, it is kind of the fact it's radio. It was like, quote, may only be radioactive. But the issue is, it's like that basic Len. I mean, it's like the Lenin quote. I am the walrus. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. The I Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. Or that famous one, you know, who benefits? And also, why would you do it? It's like, if it's, but what, I, that's what I don't get. Why dump it in Wales? That, that's one of the... It's like a basic question. Okay, it might not be radioactive now. Why dump it in Wales? Why not dump it where by the site? I don't know. It's just a bit... It's weird. Um, yeah. Who cares? Yeah. We'll be dead by by the time the radioactive stuff kicks in. And Possibly buy it. It's good to see the Future Generations Commissioner taking a strong stance on all this stuff, by the way. You know, she's really, really earning in £95,000 a year for, like, literally 
saying nothing at all on, yeah. uh, and just taking the Welsh government side and absolutely everything. Silence is the best policy. Yeah, though, thank you very it? much. Can't um, be criticised then. Okay. So what happened this week? Who are we joined by? All right. So we are delighted this week to be joined by the one and only Dr. Lisa McKenzie, a.k.a. on Twitter, Red Room Lisa. Yeah, it was an absolute legend. Absolute really. legend. Yeah, so we're going to cut to that now. Boom. Bang. Okay, we're joined today by Dr. Lisa McKenzie. Lisa's a sociologist who works at Middlesex University. Uh, her work focuses on class inequality and experiences of the working class in the UK under conditions of austerity. Um, she's the author of the fantastic 2015 book, Getting By, Estates, Class, Culture in Austerity Britain, where she focuses on the council estate in St Anne's in Nottingham. She's also the author of an up-and-coming book, Class Cleansing, Grieving for London, which is about gentrification and essentially the stories of people affected by social cleansing in London. And you're also an activist. You know, you're, you're part of the political group Class War, and you're the first of our guests to have your own Wikipedia page. Yeah, that so, I didn't <laughs> write. Okay, uh, okay, you're, you're Anne Harry, like. Yeah. <laughs> I've been accused of being a self-publicist and writing my own Wikipedia page, which I didn't. I would write mine. I would definitely. You write did write your own, didn't you? Yeah. And they took it down for inaccuracies. So. Um, so, welcome, Lisa. You're in Wales because you were on The Hour, our rival uh, TV show, <laughs> to talk about class and athletes. So, um, why don't you give us a flavour of what the debate was about, if there's anything you felt that needed expanded yeah. on? Yeah. I, I mean, when they contacted me with their idea, I just thought, yeah, you know what, because I think it's important that we talk about class. I mean, we have to talk. One of the things about class is it it's visibly invisible you know it's like everybody knows about class everybody you know has got opinion about class but nobody actually wants to talk about what really happens within class inequality and so I always want to talk about class especially for working class people I want them to hear that there is a debate and they can be part of it and their class experiences are more important than any sort of social equality minister that's got something to say about them. So I always want to talk about it, and and obviously because I'm from, you know, mining community, um, and I'm working class. I also I always want me to talk about it, not because I I've got something special to say. It's just that I don't want middle class people keep talking about us. So I think well, you know, I've got this platform now, so I. I feel responsible that I have to do something. So I got this um, request to go on the hour, and I thought, actually, I think this is really good, especially in Wales. You know, because there's, there's one thing I know about Wales is it's got a strong, long history of working-class socialism and syndicalism and also pride and culture. But also, to be working-class in Wales now means that you've got the worst education... You've got some of the worst life expectancies. These parts of Wales, and which I know now, Oxfam are supporting. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ! You know, you know. When, Set up to deal with Africa. Yeah, when you start to put, the, they saved a lot of shipping fees, mate, didn't they? But do you know when you start to put that into context that there are people in Wales that need the support of Oxfam? Oh yeah, I I, I fully intend to be the. You know, like the cor- corrupt local leader that people moan on. <laughs> oh, is the guy that's taking the grain and yeah. <laughs> ordering them himself. Yeah, something is going wrong here. Oh, you know, something is going wrong here. And also, I've got kind of a soft... I've got a special thing for Wales. Just because... Um, I don't know if you know this, but you know, in the miners' strike, 
do you know that the reason we all went on strike was to support the Welsh? Miners? Yeah, that was the... that it, that's, that is why we went on strike, is to support the Welsh miners. I think the South, wasn't the South Wales coalfields that the stayed out the longest as well? The, well, they were the, well, we all stayed out the same. Oh, yeah. We all had to go back. Oh, they went out. But what happened is uh, the South Wales miners started the strike. What had happened was at the, um, the NUM conference, there was a motion which said if they close the Welsh mines, we will all come out on strike. And that motion was carried unanimously. Brilliant. So the minute that they, started, they got the notices um, in the, the Welsh, in the South Wales mining communities, the Yorkshire pits came, the Yorkshire miners went out on strike and they went picketing. All the miners started to come out on strike. My dad went out on strike because, again, he'd said... If they're closing the, the Welsh mines, we support the Welsh mine. We're miners. And so we didn't need a ballot because they'd already had a ballot at the conference which said if they, if they go for the Welsh miners, we all support them. So, you know, so I've always had a soft spot really because history was shaped for working class. Working class history really was came to that point in 84, 85, which was the miners' strike. And it was about solidarity with the Welsh miners, but not just the miners, it was the Welsh communities. It was miners' wives and kids and grandmas and granddads and shopkeepers and local businesses, and we knew that. And the consequences of that was the valleys, the Welsh valleys have been attacked, the mines have been attacked, the working class in Wales have been attacked and they're suffering. And I remember... In the late 80s, actually, when villagers, the mining villagers, and I remember it was shocking to me, um, the mining villagers in Wales started to get heroin pouring into it. And I remember the the, the miners talking to my mum and dad, because, we, they were, you know, we were all friends after that, telling them about heroin. And we were like, God, this is awful. And then within six or seven years, it was in our communities as well. And so I'll never forget that, really, about... Took a leaf out of Oliver North's book. I just got one thing to lay on you cats and I'll split. That I am declaring war on anybody who sells drugs in our community. But Black Dynamite, I sell drugs to the community. Yeah, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the fact that thinking about the Welsh communities and going, God, it, you know, we can't let that happen to them. We wanted to make sure that the, the people in the, the mining villages in Wales were looked after and then we lost and yeah. then we all had it and then we all had it and then and you know and now we've got no solidarity with each other that was the high high water high point wasn't it yeah class it, solidarity in this it country. was you know what it was a, it was a high point and it was you know and I think about the way that we cared. I remember, you know, I was 16 and I remember the way that we talked about the Welsh communities and we were like, because we were all right, really. Our, you know, we the Knotts Coalfields was very rich and very, you know, there was lots of life left in it. Um, so, you know, we, you know, but we went on strike. Most, most Knotts miners scabbed, but, you know, some of us didn't. And I remember thinking, God, you know, the Welsh miners, you know, just there was something about them, you know, about these proud families that I could connect to and, 
you know, we weren't going to let them go down on their own. It's a profound image, and I think... It is, it is, it was. And, you know, when I think about it, and when I come to Wales, I never can get that out of my mind. How did it tally up, then, compared to, uh, you know, that's the... I mean, there is an image, and it's, yeah. it's certainly the image that got me interested in politics and yeah. socialism when I was younger, because it's a it's, a, it, it's a beautiful thing. Of, I mean, it's a tr- it was a tragic time, but it was a beautiful mm. thing. But it wasn't people, an image, it was a reality. Yeah, but You people, know, the fact that... The fact 40,000 families came out, not just to support the Welsh miners, but that started it off, but to kind of say, you know what, we, we there's something more here, there's something important, there's something fundamental about who we are here. And then from, we have to be really honest that we lost. So it was it was real then, <laughs> but, it's, you know, it's it's not now. And... You know, coming coming wet to Wales now and seeing, you know, seeing devastation, what's happened here. You know, this is this is painful. And then so but being asked to go on a programme called The Hour and to talk about class in Wales, you know, I was really, I really want to, you know, I wanted to do it. And so, you know, I kind of spoke to the researchers and I was talking to them about what, you know, the things that I might say and, you know, that and, and it was really important that for me, that I talk about the way that class is a relationship between power and it's not about the individual. Because that's one of the things that we have to keep saying is that, you know, class is not about individual behaviour. It's not about whether somebody's, you know, individual achievements. It's not about, you know, an individual's aspiration. It is about a structural power relationship between people. But, but Lisa, I own a barbershop, so I don't <laughs> believe any of that at all. Don't. I mean, you know, the petty... Mad the, it just doesn't exist for the me. The petty bourgeois. I mean, you know, they've always been the enemy of the working class. <laughs> the petty, you know, Maggie Thatcher's dad. <laughs> this, is, this is sadly... What I came in contact with, I think. Entrepreneurialism. Yeah, yeah. entrepreneurialism. Low-scale, low like. Yeah, entrepreneur. But you know what? I mean, well, I actually, you know, I did feel sorry for some of them because it's it's delusion. So what do you make of this? We we saw a clip of, and you said there's almost a, the disavowing the reality of them being working class. So where does that, where does that come from, do you think? I mean, I don't blame them. Why would you, and this is what I wanted to say last night, this is what I wanted to try and say is, when we live in a, a, in a structure, structured structure, that structures... Bourdieu. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am a Bourdieuian. You know, when we live in a structure that's structuring, that there are values attached to where we are in society. So, and if, the, if, if you are wealthy and you are upper class or elite... You are successful. And because we now, you know, over the last 30 years, we've put this massive sort of importance on individualism. So you are successful, but it's your individual success. And that's totally out of context because it's out of context in your upbringing, the resources that you've had, the advantages that you've had, unfairly or fairly. And so it's totally... And the individual is totally out of context. But at the same time... So if you are successful at the top, if you're at the bottom, it means you're unsuccessful. And so to be working class in Britain today means that you are a failure. So it's like a pathology, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's totally pathologised. So you're a failure. So why would anybody go 
oh, I'm working class, you know, and I was and I still am. And, you know, only, I suppose, people that kind of have got, haven't got a lot to lose would sort of keep talking about being working class. And, you know, I've kind of put my cards on the table. I've always been working class. I always will be. And so I ain't got anything to lose, really, because everybody knows it. And, you know, calling myself a working class academic becomes extremely problematic for everybody else but me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quite, you know, I'm, yeah. I know exactly why I'm a working class academic. And politically, it's important that I am. For me, being a working class academic is problematic for everybody. You know, because working class people can't be academics and academics can't be working class so actually by saying that i'm a working class academic i'm pushing them boundaries Mm. you know i'm pushing them borders so last night you know it was i was just disappointed that they were i mean i'm not disappointed it was you know why would working class people go on a bbc program about class and go here i am i'm working (laughs) you know and i'm proud of it because it's a really difficult thing to do yeah you'd almost think anyone that's doing that is is probably a militant communist or something like that who's got a real developed sense of class yes yeah but you know as somebody that's from you know one of the villagers that now oxfam are having to get involved in they're not going to travel all the way to to another place, to another town, to go on a programme for three hours and sort of go, yeah, I'm at the bottom, all have a go at me. Ask me why I'm so unsuccessful. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I think I've got a responsibility to do it, because I can take it. So, <laughs> so what's, what structurally has happened to the working class and to the class system since since it got basically broken, you know... Smashed. In, the, in, the, in, the, in Smash in 1984. Smashed, we got smashed. Um, you know, Let's not be let's not be nostalgic. What happened in nineteen eighty four? We lost. It was a devastating defeat. We lost, and we were defeated badly. And anybody who don't think that, you know, come to Nottingham and talk to my dad, who didn't march back to work with a brass band mm. because there was only fifteen of them on strike at the in, out of a thousand men, and he was called in and was stripped down mm. by the manager, and he was told that you know. If anything happened to him, it would be none of their business. You know, there was no, there was no pride in that from yeah. my dad. You know, and actually, for most families that were on strike, that then had to go back to that, it was a humiliation, really. Yeah. You know, so I think you know the glory days of the strike, they weren't that glorious, really. I mean, there was a, a tremendous amount of solidarity, and you know, as a sixteen-year-old, I remember. You know, I had a good time. You know, it was, it was a, I was coming of age in like this incredible, you know, a backdrop. But you know, it for my mum and dad, it was hard. It was tough. You know, I've been miners. One of the things that we always had was coal, and then in the strike, we didn't have any coal, which meant, and we all lived in houses with coal fires, which meant we had no water. <laughs> You know, my dad going out into the woods and chopping wood up to put on the fire. You know, that weren't fun in January. We're going to go on to your book, Now Getting By. It's about human stories, isn't it? It's about yeah. the people of the council estate and huge council estate in Nottingham called yeah. St Anne's. So why did you write, I mean, why did you write this book? I suppose because of the story I've just sort of told you about, yeah. you know, where I've come from and my background and growing up in this 
I mean, I didn't even know what, you know, when you grow up in 1984, 85 and your dad's on strike in Nottingham, you don't know the enormity of that. You just don't. But years later, I do, you know, I did. And I left um, the mining community just after the strike, actually, because, you know, we'd lost and there was a there was this feeling of failure and there was a feeling that it was done and it was old and it had gone. And I obviously, I was 17, 18 years old. I wanted to be part of something new and not the past. I didn't want to be in the past. I wanted to be in the future. So um, I moved to Nottingham to the city and I lived in St Anne's for 25 years. And, I, you know, and I, I was living in St Anne's in a council estate with my son, uh, my ex-husband. Um, and, you know, I was working in a factory and... You know, I was still really the same. And then I went to university. Um, I mean, my mum died. So I went to university because these things, this past started to haunt me. And I started to put it together and think, me being in a council estate and my son being 10 years old, being stopped and searched by the police at 10 years old, and where I come from, these are not unconnected things. So I went to... Uh, I went to college to an access course, which you, you can't do now because they're £3,000. And then I went to university and I found out at university that you could you could write books and study communities where I came from. I didn't know that. You know, you don't, how would I know that? I'd never read it. You know, I'd never read books about where I'm from. Kez was the only, you know, Barry Irons books were the only thing I ever, you know, as a kid, you, I, you were reading like Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe about posh kids. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see a crossover, yeah. Lion, the Witch and Kez. <laughs> yeah, Kez, get out of that bloody wardrobe. But, you know, Barry Irons books was the only thing that was, that was written about where I was from. And then, God, I was, I mean, I read The Railway Children and I was about dead posh kids. I don't know why I was reading it. Well, but I suppose children's literature. Yeah, it's like Enid Blyton and that. Yeah, <laughs> children's literature, I think probably still is very, very classed. Um, I think all culture in the UK I is. Think, yeah, it is, yeah. But you know, when you look back and I just think, God, we, I weren't represented anywhere. Um, and so when I went to university, I thought, I want to write my own story. Because even though I knew that there was some of our stories out there, Barry Irons. Alan Silito, Saturday night, Sunday morning. There weren't any, there weren't working class women's stories out there. I mean, we were not there, and actually, we still aren't there. We're still not there now. I mean, where where are we? So, I wanted to write about women like me and women I knew, and women on my estate who I thought were just incredible. They were brilliant. You know, they'd got me through some of the hardest times of my life. You know, being 19 and pregnant with a mixed-race baby, living on a council estate and having to claim benefits, these women got me through that. You know, they told me what to say to, you know, to state officials that was there basically to humiliate me. And so they they taught me how how to... um, negotiate that without losing every tiny bit of my self-respect. So, you know, when I when I got to be able to write something of my own, that's what I wanted to write. I wanted to write about us and I wanted to write about the resilience of the women in St Anne's 
the humour, you know, the, the, the negotiations that we have to make on a bloody daily basis, you know, negotiating everything, you know, the visibility of being a working class woman, you know, especially a mother. The minute you get pregnant, you sent to, you know, health centres and nurses are looking at you and, you know, they're looking, you know, are you smoking? You know, I do you smoke? I'm, you know, I wonder if they ask middle class women these questions. You know, are you, are you aware that breastfeeding is best for your baby? It's like, no, I'm not doing it. Because <laughs> you know? I just don't want to. Um and what I noticed is, you know, nothing has ever changed for working class women. So in the 80s, when I, my son was born in 88, and when I was writing my book or doing my PhD in the early 2000s, nothing had changed for working class women. And I wanted to just tell their story, really. A lot of the book is about, as you just mentioned, it's not just working class women, but everyone on the estate deals with, and as you said, negotiates essentially state institutions, be it mm. um, the police, um, yeah, yeah. the benefit system, yeah. um, health visitors even, yeah, um, yeah. things like that. Sure so, start. Yeah, so, I mean, how, so talk us even, through these coping strategies yeah. then. And how I mean, coping strategies, it really is about, you know, it's like a maze. You have to, you have to negotiate. Um, you know, the women, I mean, very early as a working class woman, you realise and you recognise that the first thing that has to, has to go is, sh- is, your, is your shame. You know, you've got to have no shame. You you know, your dignity has got to go. Because, you know, when you've got being pregnant and sort of trying to get any sort of support just to live, and you have to answer questions like, you know, do you know who your father your your child's father is? You know, there's assumption there straight away that you don't. And then in order to negotiate the benefit system, the only way you can is to say that you don't know who your child's father is. Because if you do say who your child's father is, they start harassing him. And actually, you might have a good relationship with him. I mean, most of us was living with our partners. But, you know, the only way that we could actually get somewhere to live was to say, if that, you know, we were destitute. You know, because there was not another way to, to actually get anywhere to live. And women are still having to do that today. So, you know, and and it just seems incredible to me, really, that working class women, the minute that we say we have no idea who our child's father is, that that's totally accepted. It's like, of course you don't. <laughs> of course, you know. Yeah. Would, just as I thought. Yeah. <laughs> our, and, you know, and when you actually sit and think about that, the enormity of that, that someone would not know who their child's father is is incredible but we all have to say that Mm. and you know the women the older women who had done it before me you know they taught me how to answer those questions without losing all my dignity because i tell you what it kills you to have Mm -hmm. to say that still it's still i still feel guilty about it i don't feel guilty about fucking managing but I feel guilty that I had to, like, deny my son a dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I still, he's 28. No, he's 29. I still feel guilty that I had to do that. But, you know, we we have to we have to do it. So it's ways of, I mean, does it, like, manifest itself in these, you know, like, localised like, stocks of knowledge? It's yeah, like, it's like yeah. A, oh. These are knowledges that we have to, you know, we have to, that the, the community holds. So, you know, getting, helping women through these terrible processes is one. 
Um, and then, you know, the lads, I mean, God, I remember my son being, he was 10 years old and the first time he'd ever been stopped and searched. And I was absolutely, and he, I mean, he was upset. He was 10. Mm. He was a little boy. Um, and the police put him in, back, in the back of their car and, and stopped and searched him. Um, they said that he looked like, that's the line, you look like somebody who's just mugged somebody. It's like, what, a, you know, little boy? Yeah. Uh, the assailant was had a rucksack, like some toys. Yeah, a little, a little <laughs> boy, you know, 10-year-old little boy. And they brought him home, and they had to bring him home because they'd upset him that much. I mean, he won't forgive me for telling you this story. <laughs> but um, they had to bring him home because they'd upset him that much, and they realised they'd upset him. So they took, brought him home in the police car. And I wasn't in, I was at work, and my ex-husband was in. Uh, my ex-husband's family are uh, Jamaican. Um, my ex-husband's sort of first-generation black British, um, grew, grew up in the 80s. And so when the police brought my son home, they said to him, you know, my husband, my ex-husband took him in, and he said to to Leon, to my son, you know, don't tell your mum about this because she'll get too upset. You know, we you need to learn how to manage this. And my son did tell me a few days later, and I went absolutely nuts. But, you know, my ex-husband said to me, Lisa, this is going to happen to him. Every few months now is a black boy. So this is going to happen to him. So he's got to learn how to deal with it. And I was just thinking, I was absolutely mortified that this is how we have to bring our children. So we have to tell our girls, um, you know, that, that they've got to pretty much adhere to a stereotype of, of, of sexuality um, in order for them to manage to get by, and we have to tell our boys how to how to be harassed by the police, so they don't get killed when they're being arrested. Nothing's changed there, yeah. you know. And and I suppose it's you know, for me, these stories come. You know, some of these stories are funny. You know, when one of the women said to me, when they ask you what, because they do ask you, you know, they say to you, what does what do you remember what your what this one night stand looked like? They do actually ask you this. Then they write down the description you give. So one of the women said to me, when they say that, say he had a hunchback on one eye <laughs> because they have to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a way of taking the piss. And, you know, and although, you know, it, it, it is, we find humour in it, but, you know, once one woman said to me, Lisa, if you don't laugh, you cry. And we'd be crying all the time. So would you say then that these, these constant interactions and confrontations with like the inst- institutions of the state and well, middle class institutions mm. does it change you know how people are on the estate I mean does it change their like like almost their bearing I mean to use Bourdieu or whatever like you know, yeah. their dispositions and things like that do they come across in a unique different way because of the way they've had to sort of steel themselves against these things or I'm not, I don't think it's unique I think there's a I mean, this is something I'm interested in at the moment because obviously getting by was set in Nottingham where I'm from, you know, and I'd lived in this estate for 20-odd years. Um, So I kind of knew this. But I'm thinking a lot about this at the moment, about this sort of uniqueness and how people behave. Because when I moved to London, I kind of thought I'd be the outsider. I Mm. thought that people wouldn't, you know. But actually, 
we recognised each other. And so there is there's a class, there is a class consciousness, actually. <laughs> may not be a Marxist class consciousness, but there's a class recognition yeah. on struggle. And that was something that um, came out, actually, when I was writing Getting By, and, well, actually, before that. My mother-in-law, who comes from Jamaica, said to me when she first got to Nottingham, when she first came to this country, it really shocked her that there were poor white people. She didn't know that they were poor white people. And the woman that she lived next door to, actually, for her whole life, was a working-class Scottish woman. And, they, and she said, who would have known that I would have had so much in common with a white woman? Because she had no idea that they were poor white people. And so what they, they, they recognised in each other was this shared struggle. So, you know... One woman had come from Scotland, one woman had come from Kingston, Jamaica, but they were forced together in this community and they saw each other's shared struggle. They both had bastard husbands, you know, they both they both were struggling um, and they supported each other. And so, the, you know, what they saw was this shared struggle. And when, when I moved to London, I, like I said, I thought I'd be an outsider. I thought I'd be a real researcher. You know, I'd be like a real outsider and be looking in. But actually, you know, when you start talking to people and they, working class people have got a good way of feeling you out. You know, they ask you specific questions. If you're from that area, they, they ask you, you know. Mm. And eventually you find, you know, you know. If you know, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in, in your book, you kind of um, suggested that was almost a way of authenticity. Auth- I can't say it. Authenticity, yeah. Yeah, authenticity or like a process of authenticity. Yeah, it is. Authenticity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, totally, it totally is because working class people do this with each other. I mean, you know, we always, I mean, you know, even when you come from different parts of the country, you're kind of feeling each other out going, you know, did you watch this on telly? You know, anybody, did you watch, you know, I mean, you, you're probably too young for this, but, you know, one of the questions is, did you like Swap Shop or Tismos? You know, and yeah. if you watched, if you watched Swap Shop, you were probably not our kind of people. <laughs> you know, it was Tismos, you know, these ways of feeling I remember that beef as a kid is like, did you watch BBC or ITV after school? Yeah. And just factions drawn down that yeah, line. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That was a hell to die on. Yeah, ITV was a sort of more working class. Well, my me. grandmother still won't watch ITV. Oh, is it? Because it's, it's, it's Colin's got a bit. Sorry, so. You see, I mean, I'll show you I got out how the mighty have fallen. I won't watch the ITV now. Yeah, I can't, I can't bear the advert. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but you said, as I mean, you, if I read it right, you said maybe the women on this on the estate were occasionally came across as less trusting, and you think it's because of. They're under scrutiny. Yeah, because of that. It's, it's a, literally a byproduct of... They're totally under scrutiny all the time. You know, you're being watched and monitored and, you know, things are being written about you and, you know, constantly. I mean, now, you know, I'm, I'm me as a working class woman, I'm 50 this year and I'm still under frigging scrutiny for different ways, but I'm still being watched. You know, it makes us, makes us very sharp, actually. Because, you know, we, we, find, we have to find ways of living between the cracks. Because when you're being watched all the time, and you are being watched, you have to find ways to live in the, in the cracks. And that's actually how people get by, mm. is they find the cracks that they can live in. But, yeah, women, I mean, women on council estates, working-class women are totally under scrutiny, you know, 
all of their lives, really. They're being watched. The men, on the other hand, try and disappear. Mm. You know, it's better for them to not exist. Um, and there was some sort of uh, statistic came out a few years ago. It's disappeared now. I've tried to look for it. That there was sort of there was a million working class men had disappeared off the census. <laughs> you know, because they were trying to live. They were they wanted to disappear in the cracks. Yeah. You know, they because they didn't. They were trying to not have institutionalized support. You know, they were trying to not live in in that way. But for women, you know, they have no choice. So, you know, as a woman, you try and get the home, you know, and, you know, you you get your bloke to come and live with you. You know, you can't tell anybody this because if you tell somebody that, you know, you've got a bloke that lives with you, that, that, you know, and it's the, your kid's dad, you know, for God's sake, how could it be your kid's, you know, your kid's dad's living with you, wow. Um, you know, the... It, it, you, they cut your money. Yeah. Didn't you say as a result of um, men not have not have to deal with inst- um, deal with institutions that they were um, more ready to open up to you when you interviewed them? Yeah, yeah. It was. They didn't know. They didn't know. I mean, they they thought they were great because um, nobody else. Because they just sort of spent all the time with each other. So with the, with the men, you know, they spent all the time with each other. Uh, and they just told each other how great they were, <laughs> and they just kind of, you know, they were never, they were never under that scrutiny. They'd kind of escaped it. So, how did working class? I mean, how did the, I guess, the masculinity manifest itself in the estate? You said it's a lot of the, the men were into like making money. It's about dress and things like yeah, that. Yeah. Is that how they sort of expressed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it was all sorts. Of, I mean, you know, it, we none of us are sort of one dimensional, of course, and, yeah. you know. But I suppose most the men wanted the same things as the women so you've got this idea that men that working class men are sort of feckless and um, they disappear and they don't look after the kids and that narrative about working class men comes out of what working class women have to do to survive Mm. yeah so so it's all a fucking lie none of it's true but None of us can really challenge it because you can't challenge it without outing yourself. So if a, if a woman has to go to the social or go, and you have to say, I don't know who the dad is or the dad has left me or the dad's not around, then that says something about the woman, but it also says something about the man as well. So, I mean, I used to go and interview women and, you know, the, the bloke could be sat there in the chair and I'd go in and I'd put the tape on because I was taping the interviews and um, I'd say, oh, you know, what? what's your status? And they'd go, I'm single mum for the tape. <laughs> <laughs> and the bloke would be just sat there like that watching the telly because they couldn't survive it. You wouldn't get, you wouldn't even get, you wouldn't get a house. Mm. You wouldn't have anywhere to live if you'd got a bloke. They'd go, oh, you've got a bloke, you know. Yeah. <laughs> a family can't be vulnerable. But a woman, we can accept that a woman can. Yeah. But a family can't. Institutionally. Yeah. 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 And actually, the way that um, the welfare systems work in Britain, it, it actually works against families. Um, it means that they can't be together. And one of the things that I found with men was that they had the same sort of aspirations as the women. They actually just wanted to live as a family. Mm. The women wanted to live as a family. The men wanted to live as a family. But it just appeared, you know, it wasn't really possible. 
you know, getting a job, being a man in a in a, in a city, you know, with working class and no qualifications. I was astounded at how little the men could read and write. Really, I I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't. You know, I didn't know how bad it was until I started doing sort of working with a group of men, and I was asking them to sort of email me, and they couldn't do it. And it that and all of a sudden I like thought, shit, you know, I didn't mm. know how bad it was because these were men in their thirties that they could really only do text talk. And what are their perceptions of their own position? I guess because one of the interesting things, I mean, so you know, in, in my education research has had speaking to teachers and parents. One of the most interesting things that I've picked up on is that they always complain that working class male students in the valleys are unduly confident about their chances in life so they always say you need to do your exams you need to do this and they always say i'll be fine miss i'll be i'll I'll be great and it's interesting to work out you know where does that come from and this is it bravado is it cockiness but i'm interested what what was it like yeah how did the men perceive their own position were they like oh you know this is a shit position or was it we're doing well or no, I mean, they didn't really think they were doing well. I mean, you know, in the bravado, they thought they were doing well, but not, not you know, not not really. Mm. Uh, they they actually knew that, and yeah. actually older they got, that, you know, it, it dawned on them that the lives that they'd perhaps lived and got away with couldn't continue, and they didn't want it to continue. You know, they wanted to be stable in a state, in a family environment. They wanted to be with their kids, um, they wanted to be good role models for their kids. You know, these these were men that loved their kids just like anybody else. But they're in really difficult positions. Wait, wait, know? working class people feel loved? They yeah, absolutely <laughs> loved their kids. You know, working class men loved their kids and loved the their, their mothers of their kids. But, you know, the situations were just so difficult to make that happen, you know, the women were were reticent about the men's stability, you know, because if your partner, you know, is is getting laid off and made redundant all the time and you've got a house, a council house, how are you going to pay that rent? And so, you know, if you can get housing benefit, then that's a safe way to keep your kids safe. If you've got a man that lives with you, that's officially living with you, and he's in and out of work, because a lot of working class men are in and out of work, um, or on really low pay, then he, just by his precarity, puts you and your kids at risk. Mm. It's a really, really horrific system that means that, you know, just normal things like being a family... You know, that old-fashioned thing that, you know, we want to be a family. The sort of American white picket fence, yeah. 1950s. People uh, do want that. Yeah. You know, why, you know, people, it's not a bad, you know, it's it's not a, I mean, that's what, I mean, the women used to sort of, they used to, like, say to me, are you a feminist? And I used to go, yeah, a bit. And they used to go, oh, we're not going to talk to you. Because <laughs> they don't like feminists. <laughs> they don't like feminists because they think that feminists... Are gonna not let them have a husband. Yeah, <laughs> and again, that's a really different thinking with working class women. You know, working class women want they want to be with the kids' dads, and they want uh, you know because it's it's so difficult to do. You no, know, it's not a free choice. 
Well, um, oh, sorry. Go on, sorry. I was going to say, you mentioned, you know, the precarious lives um, of the working class people. Um, but in Mike Savage's book, you wrote uh, the chapter, or at least did the research, mm. and or ghost wrote the chapter on yeah. the precariat. I was just wondering if you could explain what the precariat is. Uh, the precariat, I mean, I, I'm not really a big fan of that. I like to just call us working class. Mm. Um, it's a political, working class means it's it explains that political structure. But the precaria, I mean, it was a, it was came from a. Was a guy standing? Yeah, I think yeah. he's an anthropologist. Is he? I don't know what he is. Um, he's a bit nuts actually. But uh, he he wrote um, about the precaria, which is he sees it as an international precarious group of people that uh, don't have stable long term work. The only problem with Guy Standing's sort of definition of precariat is that he includes students. So he includes all students as, mm. as part of the precariat. And actually that's not true because students, you know, you can be a middle-class student with all the cultural and social capital and, and symbolic capital of your parents. You know, the only thing you haven't got is their economic capital, but you've kind of, you know, you're living on it. So and you have it as a safety net. Yeah, as well, yeah. It? it's just a lead. Yeah. It's just a lead, isn't it? You're gonna yeah. get. It. You're gonna get it. Yeah. So what? What? Um, just have to wait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they are. You know, they're getting it. I mean, and that's what uni- university is a lot of the time now. It's just holding have three yeah. years, of, three years yeah. on, on the person. And uh, but what um, the Great British Class Survey did that might you know this this the book that Mike Savage wrote um, that we all chipped in, it extended this notion well it didn't extend it it narrowed the no it narrowed it down this notion of precariat really to the people at the bottom mm. of society the people on benefits the people who are on really low paid job people on zero hours people who have to work through agencies to get a day's work um which now actually is most of the working class i guess that's the di- <laughs> i mean that's the, the difference in the the utility of the term is when you you yeah. almost compare and contrast it with traditional ideas of the working classes, yeah. you know, stable blue collar factory yeah. workers and things like that, who could afford perhaps back in the welfare state this white picket fence, yeah, 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 you know, nuclear yeah, fa- a, nuclear family. Uh, yeah, it was an aspiration, you yeah. know, um, you know, get a car, yeah, go on holiday, you know, these were aspirations. Um, you know, the Dagenham worker, the Ford workers, you know, the miners. Perhaps not so much the miners. Um, but these things are almost literally impossible now to achieve. Yeah, but they are. Yeah, and now now it is it's impossible. And I think you know if we start if we if we take the term very literally, you know that this is about class as in a Marxist term of class. Then obviously you know the people that we're talking about now are the, the lumpen proletariat. But you know I think it's time for us to re-examine class. Um, and I don't really, I really don't like that term lump and proletariat. I, di- I mean, <laughs> I I, the lumpy proles. Yeah, I don't yeah, like Yeah, but that. I mean, I don't like, I mean, yeah, what was it? Marx called them like the, the offal or the refuse yeah. of all yeah, classes. Yeah, and they and always have been, the underclass have been that. But the reason why the Mar- Marxists dismiss this group of people. They're politically backwards. Yeah, because they don't see them as uh, revolutionary. Hmm. The working class that we're talking about, you know, the miners, the, you know, we started off with the with the working class. They see them as sort of a revolutionary force, you know, that the they would be at the vanguard, you know, the, the middle class 
I don't know, what would you call them? The middle class left. You know, they would be... <laughs> the pretentious the, left. Yeah, you know. Yeah. They would be at the front of the vanguard mm. and then they'd have the support of, you know, the working class behind them. Paul, Mason, so, Paul Mason's at the front. Yeah, yeah. Paul Mason's as, at as, the as front. As the working class unanimously vote on who can uh, speak for them. As, yes, as yeah. As they're too articulate. Paul Mason's obviously at the front. All hail Paul. Yeah, with his popular front. Yeah, and then, you know, so you've got the left. <laughs> when Jeremy Corbyn, he's at the front as well, of course. Mm. Him and John McDonnell, they're at the front. Who else is at the front with them? Uh, certain Have we got any women? Um, oh, um, Laura Pitcock is. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Laurie Penny will be at the front, yeah. leading the leading the um, uh, they like... the they the they uh, vanguard, yeah. and you know, and the revolutionary. Oh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dog, my uh, the, my president. Yeah. And then you know the the and the working the revolutionary working class would have been at the back, mm. supporting them and pushing yeah. this. Thanks through. so much for speaking yeah. for me. I couldn't have done it. And so that's, that that is. I mean, we've just explained the history of the Labour Party there. Yeah. Um, and and the future of the Labour Party yeah, as well. Yeah, we've predicted. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, we haven't because that's this is the problem: is the working class are not now behind them. And so what? Oh, they've got one person in momentum though, haven't they? The little mascot. Have they? Uh, well, apparently, I've not seen a momentum. The a dad working, was a plasterer or something. I have not seen a working class momentum. Maybe I mean, just the one one. Person. Might be one in Wales. Yeah. No, no, no. I don't have think you got momentum in Wales? Welsh Labour Grassroots. That's the sister mm. organisation. So, mm. um, but but now because and this is why I don't like the lump and proletariat is because the left vanguard see that the the working class don't exist or they don't exist in the form that they want them to exist in uh and so now like militant factory workers yeah that gets behind them so now what they've done is they've they've further reduced working class people as lump and proletariat the the residue yeah the residue that can't be that can't be politicized they're actually politically or they have problematic views. Yeah, mm. and now and that you know, and they've just uh, you know they've just legitimised all that with their rhetoric for the last eighteen months on Brexit, and that's you know this is what they're telling us. Why isn't these scumbags have voted for Brexit? Yeah, that the, actually the lumpen. Yeah, the lumpen have voted for Brexit. There is. I mean, it's, it's, it, as you said, it's right throughout Marxist idea that the these people are politically backwards. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, they're reactionary. Yeah, yeah. They don't have class solidarity and yeah. things like that. And See, this is the problem. This is the problem with um, with theory. It really is only theory, <laughs> yeah, because that's not the truth. You know, the people the people in my book are not party political, mm. but they're locally concerned about things, and they really care about you know their communities and what's happening to them and to their communities. It's just that obviously the Labour Party that are empowering these sort in you know in the poorest communities like the Labour Party is in power but you know the Labour Party are less interested in the community and more interested in the Labour Party um, and hence we've got this divide yeah and it's a chicken and egg scenario isn't it it's like if people do if people are disengaged from politics and if they do let's say make the ultimate crime of voting for Brexit heaven forbid it, you know, is that because they're politically backwards or is it because they're rational and they see that the, the people who are meant to be representing them have completely yeah. pulled away, disengaged I mean, and don't represent them? It's a rational decision to oh disengage yeah, it's from rati- politics. Oh, oh, yeah, it is. I, I mean, I, do, I don't... Th- uh, you know, I think the Brexit vote was totally a rational decision. It was... 
it was rationally taking a kick. Yeah. Actually, I mean, I mean, a lot of the ex-miners voted Brexit. Um, you know, if for lots of different reasons. Some of them genuinely were Lexiters. Um, some of them just thought they would give a kick. Yeah, as a, as a catch-all protest. Yeah, vote. yeah. Uh, some just thought they hated David Cameron, so they thought, fuck it, I'm not voting, What you know, I'm not doing anything he says. I think there was, there, I think there was a, was it the Chakraborty article? And he, I think he came to, it might have been even in, in the valleys, but one of the closing lines from it, yeah, he did. Yeah, and a guy said, "Well, whatever happens, at least we'll give David Cameron a kick." Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and then there was, I mean, Nottinghamshire was similar as well because Nottinghamshire and here in the valleys, when they when they came and did, oh God, when they did, uh, when what's his name, the twat, oh. from li- the Liberal <laughs> Dem, the the worst Lib Dem in the world. Odenkirk. No, um, no, who was the leader? The one who married a cheeky girl. No, no the not one him. who was a, like he was a singer. He's getting Tim Farron. No, not the Tim one, Farron. No, what's his name? Vince Cable. Oh, the co- coalition, Nick Clegg. Yeah, Nick oh, Clegg. Yeah. Oh my god, I mean, we forgot him already. <laughs> yeah, but um, Nick Clegg. How could we? Do you remember he did a he did a news oh, night yeah, program he here? Around, walking, yeah, yeah, and he was walking. Of course, of course he'd be the person you picked. Him, yeah, right? and he came. Get me, Nick Clegg. Yeah. And he came to Wales, and he was like saying to people, you know. Why did you not understand the Brexit argument? Not, not why, you know. Yeah, I did you twice. Yeah, no, why did you not understand it? And um, they were showing him things like, well, the reason we voted Brexit is because, where was it? Was it in Cardiff? I don't know where. Oh, it, was it Ebbervale? He did. Know, it, oh. So basically, he I went think somewhere, and the and the you had paid like Ebbervale, yeah, yeah, sort of fifty odd thousand pound to put a. A metal dragon in the middle of the town, yeah. and the people went. Well, we didn't want this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we wanted. To, we wanted to keep the community centre. We didn't want to. You we saw didn't... that attitude with the Guardian. They're like, we went to Ebervale, and they'd purposely get people like to um, take pictures of them outside. Like, oh, the EU funded this. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, cool. We got a swimming pool. Yeah. There's Still no jobs. Yeah. And nobody like, wanted it. Thanks. Yeah. You know what? Thanks. But and again, that that is a t- that's a typical sort of response of you know a middle class. Uh, of institutions, you know, we're not going to give you what you need or what you want. Yeah, something What we're going to do is we're going to give you what we think (laughs) you need. We've built you a theatre, because what we would have liked. Yeah, so, yeah, that we're going to go to. So you've argued then, Lisa, that, I mean, you've started writing about Brexit as the Brexit vote in working class areas is a manifestation basically of an inherent distrust of politicians, but also of middle class institutions. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I would. Um, I, I, it's also a, a hatred for London. Mm. I mean, I think we've got to be really honest about that as well. There is, there in in the rest of the country, there is a there is a hatred for London. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, and I, I, I travel all over the country, and you know, people will go. Oh, could you live there? You know, could, they, 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 you, you know, or you know, they feel sorry for me for living there. And you can't, you know, they can't understand. They're like, you know, do you? Is there anybody nice? Have you got any friends? It's really, you know. Do you live on the tube? Yeah, they don't really. Do, it's not. It's not sort of an ignorance. It's just the thought of this place seems like uh, an aggressive, vicious place. And they're right. It mm. is. Um, and I tell you, and this is what my new book is about: is do you know what's really bad for London? 
and it is a really aggr- a vicious, aggressive place. What's really bad is if you work in class in London, mm. because you have no chance. <laughs> you have. I mean, I went to London with that sort of northern. Uh, Midlands sort of view that you know everybody in London must be rich Mm. and when you get there and you meet other like I said you meet other working class people and they've lived very similar lives to you and you know now they're fucked what is it I think um, average average rent outstrip salary in London oh just it's not even you know what it's not even you know the average salary I mean average salary is about 22 grand even in london when mm. you've got like millionaires yeah. at the top um these people on very low pay in london um and you know a one-bedroom flat is 1400 quid a month unbelievable i know it's you know what uh, the, the the working working class londoners they know you know they know that their time is up they know that they've got to go they know they're not welcome there's a, but i mean the, obviously we know that it's appalling and we'll get on to talk about the you know the housing situation and gentrification and the Labour Party and things like that um, in a sec but I remember someone on Twitter said what's going to happen for example to London and it's almost it's not it's not that who's it's not that Brexit thing of like oh who's going to pour my latte you know, it is a bit of that but it it's almost like well, the Polish person but people are like well now. who's going they were like well how is London going to sustain itself yeah. once it's literally been cleansed of working class people and you do wonder i mean there is a part of me it's like well oh yeah sh- you know shit i didn't think of that that's a good point like where are people going to live yeah um and how are people going to come into work and then you think well I, I don't really know well some of us are hoping it's going to crash in i mean i want it to crash in yeah, i it's think it, collapse. i think it needs to collapse under its own weight it does it does it needs to do that as a as a i don't know as a domino effect or as a of what happens to capitalism because mm. it is it's going it has to it is it's it going to. i mean i keep looking at it going you know it's like the you know the the bump in the ceiling <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know you're kind of looking at it going can't last much longer can't last much longer and it's lasted longer than i thought it would i mean three years ago i thought it was a breaking point but it, it's lasting because there's international money mm. holding it up so it, I mean, it will have to. It will have to fall in. Perhaps it's Brexit. What what makes it fall in? You know, because what London relies on is this constant stream, European of young European workers, who are educated, coming into London to do low level jobs. That's what it's relied on. And what's happened is, working class Londoners get get pushed out further and further out because. They, you know, if you've got, you know, if you're, you've got a family, you can't live in London on a normal wage. You, not even. That's impossible. You can't, you can't live on a normal wage. But if you are young and you come into London for an experience. You can live in a bunch of houses. Yeah, and you know, and there's four or five of you in a house all having an experience, then you can do that. But you know, if you. Or in some cases. 20 people in a room when yeah 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 and yeah and then the extreme to that is people is people that are yeah in you know living in sheds yeah yeah yeah, living in sheds i mean then actually there's a lot of that there's a lot of people paying a hundred quid a week to live in a shed it's mental well actually more than 100 quid a week i've got a shed as well it says a lot about that how my horizons have like adjusted downwards you say that and i'm like oh i wouldn't yeah, Ooh. yeah, yeah. 
No, no, there is. I mean, there's a Wendy House or Shed. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. there, I mean, actually, Vice do that do a quite funny thing, but they look at um, sort of rent, actual, rent, actual adverts. Yeah, yeah, rent of the week, and there was a couple of months ago uh, an advert for a space under the stairs, yeah. and this is and it's, this is actually you know, and these are. There's bunk beds I've seen a lot of. Yeah, I mean, they, and they aren't actually—they're the ones that people dare advertise. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's you true. know, you know that you would dare advertise a space under the stairs for five hundred pound a month. There's an open sewer near me, you know, three hundred. Well, I've seen—I mean, in London, you do see—you see caravans on the streets mm. and that now, and you know, so if you're working class, you're not—you're not managing now. You can't manage. You—you you know. They are absolutely hanging on now. So tell us then, Lizzie, your book is about gentrification. I mean, gentrification, I mean, we've had, I mean, gentrification is ongoing in pretty much all cities, of course, but what I mean... Except for Jen so far. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on Bangor, the yeah, town yeah. refuses to gentrify. Good but, for them. <laughs> yeah, but, but, what, but what, ha- what happens? We'd rather have talk, no shops then. Talk us through gentrification as a process. Um, I mean, gentrification over the last five six years has sort of gone as it's almost like i mean the guardian's been one of the worst for this they've kind of said done it as like it's a good thing yeah you know it makes things a bit nicer cobble streets yeah you know and it kind of saves like things Redbrook buildings you know it saves yeah. things um pub you know, pork. yeah you know when when the pub's not needed anymore it makes it into a Tesco, Dance studio, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, in Bethnal Green, there was um, this old pub, beautiful old pub, and it was standing empty for ages. And now it's a vegetarian pret. <laughs> it's true. And they have done a lovely job of, main, you know, it's like all the... I will say, they, they do. They always do have nice interiors. Yeah. yeah. Nice, but, nice, but, the buildings you know, always look nice. They have, like, oh, it's got all the, you know, all the sort of traditional East End tiles on the pub on the outside, you know, and they've cleaned them all up and it, it does look lovely. And people have gone, you see, that's not, that's a good, that's good gentrification. Can I controversially uh, shoo in the, the, the cereal cafe? Is. Yeah, it's not controversial at all. I'm quite <laughs> happy I did that. Um, so for people listening who don't know you, do you lead uh, the class war? I didn't Pretend. lead it. No, I was just, I was Van- on Vanguard, it. Vanguard. You know, yeah. well, we don't have, you know, you, you know, class war. Oh, yeah. Class war, we, there's no leaders, is there? I mean, you know, one of the things that... We all smashed it up. Like. One of the things that class war all, has always said, and I believe this is from Swansea, is... If you hold the banner, you're in class war. Mm. You know, there's not a, you know, you don't have to go through an initiation process. It's just, you know, do you believe in class war? Yeah. Will you hold the, hold the banner? Mm. Yeah. You're in. Will you <laughs> set fire to that? Yep. Yeah, no, there's no setting fire. I mean, the, the serial killer thing, you know, I mean, it was a, a, a Ponzi hipster shop that, that was in Brick Lane that sold um, cornflakes for £4.50 a, a, a bowl. Um, That's like an insane example of gentrification, mm. isn't it? It's not. Do you know what? It's not anymore. You, we thought it was insane then. I mean, now there's work much. Uh, I mean, I've been collecting these stories. There was At Christmas, there was a, a £55 a head Christmas meal in a oh, one, of, yeah, I remember. In one I remember of the old, it. in one of the old pubs in Hackney. It wasn't it like served by working class, like it, it was, was like the working class experience. Yeah, it was called the Cockney Experience, and the the thir- they were a bunch the, of drama students. They were actors, oh, yeah, God. they were actors dressed up as Cockneys. 
But the interesting thing Hello, about gentrification... Hello, my old China. <laughs> but the interesting thing about gentrification is this almost... It's replication of a working class, yeah, authentic well, past. Well, isn't I'm it? writing. It, the... I mean, what I'm writing about that. So, what? So, we've got this idea that gentrification is it's some sort of process that you know one thing moves out and another thing comes behind it, but that's actually not what gentrification is. Ruth Glass that coined this term in the 1960s. When she talked about gentrification, she was absolutely talking about class war. Mm. And she said that this was not a process. This was about the forcing out of working class people by middle class people. This was actually, it wasn't sort of a natural decline process. It was actually a forced political process. But that has been lost over the last 40 or 50 years. And now it's something about cupcakes and and cornflakes and... Burgers on boards and stuff. Yeah, Mm. and burgers on boards and, you know, drinks in jam jars and craft ale and people say to me you know what's wrong with you don't you want anything nice for you you know but that's not what gentrification is about that's you know that that's kind of the showy stuff yeah so you know if you were to have an anti-gentrification march which we did you know you'd go through shoreditch you know and you'd kind of take the piss out of the hipsters and mm. you'd laugh at them but that's just the showy bit the reality of gentrification are families being forced out of their homes. Um, families in Newham, Hackney, Southwark, Tower Hamlets in, in London, being forced not just out of the city, but out of the whole area and ending up in Nottinghamshire, yeah. Hastings, Liverpool. Um, I'm sh- I bet there'll be people in Wales that's yeah, been that, moved well, out. Yeah, they do then. They end up in HMOs. Um, yeah. But... What you just said there is interesting because there's. I remember again. I spent too much time on Twitter, but there is an interesting debate because it's almost. I used to think as well. Who drives gentrification? Is it? And I used to blame artists and hipsters. Yeah. But then I guess the that obscures almost the the more structural yeah. reasons behind it, which are property developers. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. People that hike rents up and things like yeah. that. So artists are always like the the visible manifestation, yeah. aren't they? But they're not the ones that almost. But I'm wondering now whether what we're getting now is gentrification, though, because, you know, when it's big property developers that are just coming in, doing deals with mainly Labour councils, and just, and you know, the, the middleman, you know, the artists and the, the, the petty bourgeoisie are not even in there anymore. Yeah. They're, they're not even included in that process. You know, they've been swept aside. And actually, you know, where once was a council estate two years later you've got a glass and chrome monstrosity so that actually gentrification process is not happening anymore would you say that's more social cleansing then well it is but i mean i've got a mate um martin wright who's the Whitechapel anarchist who calls this manhattanization Mm. because what is happening is i mean if you go into parts of london i'm sure it'll be coming to cardiff any day soon um, it's happening in Manchester right now, is they're literally um, labor, mainly Labour councils. I mean, it's not just Labour councils, but... That's Labour, easily some of the worst offenders. Yeah, and they are the worst offenders because they're in control of yeah. poorer communities. Absolutely. You know, they're doing deals with property developers and, you know, getting rid of the social housing because... I should, I should say, just to clarify, it definitely is happening in Cardiff and it definitely yeah. is the Labour Council. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, you've got... so. You've got these deals being done 
So actually, the artists and the Bohemians, are, they're not even... The, cup, the surplus to requirements, Yeah, the cupcakes aren't even, you know, in it anymore. Yeah. Um, and what, you, what we have got instead of the cupcakes and the artists, we've got the corporate art coming yeah. in so you have the you know so what we've got is the just i mean there's a there's a place in london in oldgate i've wrote a story it's about it's in my book and it was it's crazy and you know what you'll you'll have examples in cardiff or in fact all over wales watch actually watch um so you'll probably have like a uh i don't know a theme parked mining yeah. <laughs> you know what will happen is you'll have some big chrome building and there'll be a pretend pit in the middle of it or something but um in the east end there's a an area uh near oldgate east and it used to be called well it's still called goodman's fields and it was where all the east enders you know all the market traders the huguenots and then uh, the jewish market traders and then the bangladeshi Bef- you know, up until about the 1950s, so for 200 years, all the market traders had used this field to put their horses at night. So these were working East End horses that did the markets, and then at night they'd go in this field, and then in the morning people would fetch them again. Um, over the years, the f- obviously the horses went, the field went, became sort of brownfield site, and now it's got seven... 30-storey glass and chrome towers on it um, and this big water feature that must have cost millions and in this water feature there's five bronze horses that look like some Arabian stallions and it's... A lot of Saudi money, is it? Yeah, no, but it looks like... But but what it says, and they've actually got the story of these working-class horses. So the working-class are not allowed in this area. Yeah, because it's... But their history has been taken bastardised and it's you know could you imagine the old nags of the east end looking like these horses Mm. so you know so we're not even in it all we are now is sort of we we're hauntings thanks so much lisa that was really insightful and there's so many important lessons for us not just in wales but just in general for for people with souls essentially so um as is our custom are there any people you'd like to give a shout out to or are there any one you'd like to sort of start a beef with? You can do both. Oh God, loads of people. I mean, these are, I mean, beefs. <laughs> new, God. new beefs. The new, new beef. I don't know if I've got any new beefs, but I've got, I've got loads of shout outs. I want to shout out to, I want to shout out to every mining family in Wales that you know we haven't forgot you. Yeah, brilliant. Um, that's my. That's who I want to shout out to. Beef. Um, <laughs> Yeah, let's just fuck off the Labour Party. Really. It's just—it's an old one. It's a tried. The Labour Party listening, fuck off. Yeah, let's yeah. just fuck them off. Really, you know, it's time. It's their time is done. Move. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, love it. Awesome. All right, thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. All right, cheers. Okay, amazing from Lisa. It's really important, I think, to reflect on the implications of her research and her book and a forthcoming book for Wales. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is obviously gentrification. Now, we've had engagements on Twitter in particular with people in the Welsh nationalist movement who clearly aren't bothered about gentrification, uh, mainly because a lot of people in Wales who are Welsh, self-identify as Welsh nationalists are actually gentrifiers. You know, they're taking part in the gentrification process in Cardiff. And there's a real need to be aware of this. I mean, gentrification is and social cleansing is obviously ongoing in Cardiff. I mean, that's what we're seeing on a daily basis. And we need to understand 
it is a process. I mean, if you look at the bit, the, I mean, we'll do a separate episode on this, but if you look at the... Or you can just listen to our first episodes. But the amount, yeah, but the amount of foreign capital that is, pl- uh, oh, yeah. that is plowed into these like new developments down the bay and things like that, and the the absolute mockery that is the amount of affordable housing that Cardiff Council uh, builds, I mean, it's absolutely... It's tiny, it's negligible. And if you think recently Corbyn went round London with Sadiq Khan, who is actually a Blairite, but, you know, and Corbyn said about it, not only the new housing strategy is going to be, obviously they're going to build more social housing, which is fantastic. But secondly, he basically said that there's a new initiative where residents will be basically consulted in detail before things like the Harangi HTV uh, sort of local development plan go ahead. And then it got me thinking about the Place Dua development in Cardiff, this new massive garden city in the north of Landeff, which is going to be a, just a massive disaster for the city in terms of infrastructure, in terms of sustainability, and how it was waved through by Cardiff Council in the face of massive opposition from residents groups and um, and environmentalists, and it was just signed, and it was it was just a foregone conclusion because let's face it, they are corrupt. They're in bed with property developers, like New Labour councils everywhere for some reason. There's just such a symbiotic relationship between them and um, property developers and, and you don't know like you know is it corruption or is it just ideological either way it's terrible i thought they're all socialists though oh, yeah but it's all but it also speaks to the need we've said before for, for a need for for activism you know for non-party activism you know i mean people and this is what's going to be interesting in like the may local council elections in in london for example i mean you've got momentum at the moment deselecting the people from harrogate council like claire cobra and things like that um she resigned which is fantastic you know good riddance See you later. You horrible person. But as Barnaby, our comrade Barnaby from Revolution Communist Group has said, you know, <laughs> come council elections, you get the weird and edifying situation where Momentum and other like left people in Labour end up campaigning for the Labour Party, which means campaigning for Blairites. And and as Lisa said, they you know, they did Lisa mention it in the podcast that she that you know there's gonna be an anyone but Labour campaign in, oh she didn't she she um that was off off air but, off air but there is going to be the an any, there is going to be an anyone but labor or oh, i don't know if we is that a no i wasn't you say it we can say it okay yeah but there's going to be an anyone but there labor will be campaign, an assassination you know let no but led by class war um but it's interesting i mean you need that radical activist core in wales you need to develop it because there is just isn't anyone there there's no one people don't stand up against this stuff um firstly i think because gentrification is just seen as good in wales people don't have the there's not this widespread understanding of it as a concept and and when it is there people just go well well this is great isn't it yeah i mean um, i mean wales has like had almost nothing for so long it's yeah, almost like seen it's being treated equal to england yeah and gentrification is seen as oh well cardiff used to be a shit all and now it's got you know uh hipster bars which serve you know drinks in jam jars and that's therefore like a good thing but as lisa said that's the most obvious manifestation of gentrification, you know, the hipsters, the artists, um, the extortionate drinks and burgers um, on boards and things like that. The reality of gentrification is, you know, huge buildings ousting working class people for, uh, and new developments sprung up, you know, ratcheting up house prices and ultimately forcing out working class people, which is what we've seen in Butte Town, which yeah, is yeah. what we will, which we've seen in Canton, which is what happened in Grangetown and it'll be happening in, well, it'll just happen. Every, it'll it'll happen everywhere. You know, splots on its way to being gentrified. So we need to get together and start campaigning against this. And that's it. Um, we also, and it's also what Lisa started talking about with the class structure uh, and the significance of class. She is right. I mean, she was she was right. It was interesting to see that she came to Wales and she talked about 
this assumption that Wales is going to have this strong working class culture thing. But I mean, it's high time now to do a almost like what Lisa said and what Lisa undertook with Mike Savage, this overview of the nature of class in the UK. There needs to be, I mean, there'd be, there are plenty of people that did really good sociological analyses of the class structure of Wales in the 70s and 80s. But I mean, really, the last one I can think of is like Dave Adamson, who did this thing in, you know, I think 1991, and he was looking about how class was fracturing in Wales and new class fractions were being thrown up and, and basically people would become, you know, less attached to working class culture. And so there's a real need now for a, a proper in-depth sociological analysis of the state of Wales, you know, 20 years after devolution. Because, you know, we have seen the rise of this, you know, white collar working class. We've also got the precariat, um, which is regionally constituted. But, you know, what are the people who work in Admiral in Cardiff, you know, and make 20 five grand a year but you know essentially working in a call centre you know feel um, are these people you know how are they voting mm. that that stuff hasn't been happening mainly because people are obsessed with opinion polls and Brexit and- alright so um, shout out this week uh, I would like to send a you know a shout out from I guess us and the pod to the prisoners going on strike at the moment and uh, there's basically a prison labour boycott a non-violent one in, in a lot of the prisons in Florida and a lot of the prisoners who basically you know because if you haven't watched the film 13, I mean, a lot of people in prison in the US have basically been used to, for slave labour. Um, and they're doing a non-violent strike and saying we're not doing this um, because it's, you know, it's labour. They're, they're workers just like us. Um, they're just incarcerated. Uh, and they've obviously been locked down and um, punished for that. So solidarity with those comrades. Anyone interested in that as well? There's a really good book called The New Jim Crow Laws uh, by Michelle something. I can't remember, but that's uh, very much about, you know, how prison system now is used as like a new kind of just source for cheap labor so oh i also saw side note shuja Haider um also tweeted something about uh, henry kissinger who said nuclear first strike on north korea is tempting and i just want to say i really I just just die like why why is yeah, Henry? why why can't you just hurry up and die like so I, that was my wish for this week that henry kissinger dies that's a good wish uh, my shout-outs this week are to Polly, who's just turned 20. You wouldn't believe it because she's super smart. Yeah, happy birthday, she, Polly. Yeah, and to her twin brother. Uh, another shout-out to the programme Monkey Life, which is brilliant. So, What's that? Oh, it's like this show when it's just in a monkey sanctuary in Dorset and all like, the stuff that happens. And it's just watching monkeys for like about five hours at a time on Sunday. So that's how I spend my Sundays. And um, also... A shout out or beef, uh, Aditya Chakrabarti, when are you going to come on? You know, Lisa's on now. It's it's time for you to step up and, you know, reach the highest point in your journalistic career Correct. by coming on to Desolation Radio. That's absolutely the case, yeah. Looking forward to chatting to you soon, Aditya. Right, any thank yous or anything, or should you just say goodbye? No, just leave it at that. Ta-ra. Bye, everyone. Ta-ra. Bye. Yeah. You know, I'm going to assume you guys aren't members here. Uh, you know what? Why don't you just go ahead and sign us up? We'll, we'll blaze through these in no time. Yeah, actually, if you'd like to join our swim club, you need to be sponsored by two existing members. But I'm sorry to tell you, fellows, that membership is currently at capacity. At capacity. Yeah. <clears throat> We're in the middle of a terrible heat wave, and you happen to be at capacity. For us. Well, you can try the public pool, but... <clears throat> oh, thank you. Thank you for your suggestion. We're out of here. Yeah. Let's go. You, you don't have you. to. Oh, sir. I cannot believe that that just happened in this day and age. I know. I can't believe there's such a big list. Mm-mm. Don't you get it, dude? They'll always be at capacity for us. I don't get that at all. Is that what he said? Don't you get it? We got big time, dude. He called us lower class. He called us lower class? Yeah. 
Yeah, but I wouldn't argue with that, dude. We're definitely lower class. Well, yeah, I'm not disputing that fact, dude. I'm saying we shouldn't get boxed out for it. 